0: Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius.
1: Real Men of Genius.
0: Today we salute you, Mr. Giant Taco Salad Inventor.
1: Mr. Giant Taco Salad Inventor.
0: A culinary creation that baffles the human mind, a 12,000 calorie salad.
1: I coll-
0: ground beef, refried beans, guacamole, cheese, sour cream, and if there's any room left, a few shreds of
2: lettuce.
1: lettuce.
0: Some may ask, is your taco salad healthy? Of course it is. It's a salad, isn't it? So crack open a nice cold Bud Light conquistador of the calorie. You put the feast in Fiesta.
1: Mr. Giant Taco Style Inventor. Bud Light Beer and as a Bush for Collins. Columbus.
2: of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Half man, half podcast machine. I'm coming out of Pawleys Island, South Kagalakey. Back into Captain Kirk's chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's good, Seaman's? What's juicy? Are you guys sick of me yet? I picked up the pace a little bit in this second season, right? Now, I don't know what it is, folks. I I, I got a fire inside of me right now. I'm running hot. There's still so much work to do. it's so little time to do it. Nothing lasts forever, but this is my quest to preach the gospel of baseball to the world. You know, like my attempt at an audio baseball Wikipedia to leave behind for future generations. And... Honestly, this thing has become bigger than me right now. Our proverbial freight train is rolling. And I feel like she's still picking up steam. As show 100 of BKP looms on the horizon. I don't know where I would be without this audience of steamheads. I feel like I'm probably in the best place in my life that I've ever been. I mean, you know, I'm still consumed by rage. I, I I've actually learned to compartmentalize all my baggage. And use that as fuel on these shows. I, I, I truly believe this is an art form. I mean, that's how I approach what I do. But, I feel like... I'm probably in the best place of my life that I've ever been. Quite honestly. I'm still consumed by... You know, all this rage. But, every week I sit in front of the... You know, like this blank audio canvas. And I begin to build this these shows and layers and if I'm being honest it's it's very therapeutic for me and there's nothing that I love doing more yeah they may not all be Rembrandts but you can be rest assured I, I put my heart and soul into each one of these shows for you and that's because of the love and respect you've shown me during this grassroots endeavor here hello everybody it's your boy Jake Robinson holler if you hear me Thank you for uh, dropping by my dojo this week for yet another chapter in the BKP Book of Seams as Backwards K-Pod is a baseball show where together we examine the characters, moments, the rich history of the baseball stories, pop culture, and in this week's case, baseball stadiums that have been links to baseball's past and, you know, they're propelling us into her unforeseen future. And before I jump headlong into this week's topic I gotta say I really appreciate all the love and messages this past month I I told you guys at the outset of the month I was really excited about the shows coming up and you guys have responded overwhelmingly positive in kind so Thurman Munson, Black Aces, Mo Berg I'm truly humbled by all the Seamhead love thank you so much I mean just total love and I heard a lot of I only knew a little bit about Thurman Munson, but not really his whole story. Or, I never even heard of the Black Aces. Or, you know, is that Mo Berg's story for real? And honestly, folks, that makes my heart smile when someone hears a story for the first time or just picks up, the, like, these little golden nuggets I leave laying around. I love those messages. And I, and I get more, I've gotten more of those in the last couple of weeks than I've had in a while. Good stuff, y'all. I'm so Fucking blessed, But look, I'm ready to roll. I'm gonna grab a six pack of some of these Iron City beers. You just don't know, know nothing about that. I'm gonna ask that you kiss your loved ones goodbye. Spanky Lavalier just threw the ball down, and now that infield is throwing a rock around. The ump is called play ball. So I'm calling all aboard. Uh-huh. As yes, I, I, I couldn't buy this fucking train. As we load up on our BKP time travel choo-choo, and I'm gonna set our destination and date for June thirtieth, thirtieth, nineteen o nine, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the baseball universe is about to be turned on its head by the grand opening of the second of baseball's pantheon. Of jewel box stadiums in the Keystone State in less than a year, the incomparable palace with the seams at Pittsburgh Pirates Forbes Field, and before we hit this wormhole and bend time to our will, let me give you a little backstory skinny on the on the way. In 1908, baseball would witness a link in geographical and robbery terms. When the first Cathedral of Baseball was constructed in Philly, it was the first of all the jewel box stadiums. And, yeah, I'm talking about shine Park, of course. And I've explained this in the past. Throwback, uh, you know, these past throwback cribs that I've done. The jewel box stadiums were the buildings, uh, they were usually going up in these downtown city blocks. And they had quirky dimensions based on the plot of downtown land that sat on. And Shibe Park in Philly was the first stadium to be constructed completely out of steel and concrete. Uh, this one here in Pittsburgh, Port Field, it's going to be the first National League stadium built completely out of steel and concrete. And after Sean went up, there was an explosion of these jewel box stadium constructions in almost every major base- baseball market at the time. You had Shy Park, Yankee Stadium, Fenway, Wrigley, Comiskey, Polo Grounds, Tiger Stadium, Crosley, and of course, Forbes Field. Now, the jewel box era lasted until about the late 30s into the 40s when stadium construction trended towards these concrete, multi-purpose monstrosities. 300 miles to the west of Filthy, their Keystone neighbor turned green with heavy during the fall. Bucko's owner, Barney Dreyfus, he tells his boy, Andrew Carnegie, I'm going to make a stadium to make people forget all about Shy Park. And since 1892, the Pirates domain was the 16,000 seat wood constructed Exposition Park 2. Drive is one of the larger park In what is now the Oakland-Shenley part of the Berg. Which is roughly three miles from the business district. And critics hammered the downtown snub. But Barney had a plan. That included trolley infrastructure for accessibility. And he wanted it for... Well, he wanted it far from the industrial smog of the steel mills at the time. And at first glance, the topography and the land of the land, while well, was going to need to be leveled off, as there was a huge ravine that literally ran through the, the, the property, ultimately where field would end up being. In 1909, the ravine is filled and construction begins in the park named for John Forbes, a British general in the French and Indian War who made camp in Oakland, captured Fort Dickens in a crucial battle, and he renamed it Fort Pitt. And for many years, Dreyfus was encouraged to attach his name to Forbes field, but he decided to name the structure after the British general. The majestic Forbes field rose from the ashes of at the junction of Bigelow Boulevard, John Care Street, the Cathedral of Learning, and Bouquet Street. By the early 1900s, the area was dominated by Slavs, Poles, Italians, and Germans who had emigrated through southwest Pennsylvania to the flatlands of the Midwest, leaving uh, basically living among the hills and the rivers that split the forest like arteries to the heart. The men worked double shifts in order to open on schedule. Ground was officially broken on March 1st, 1909. And the project was completed in 122 days, less than four months after they broke ground. And it just never ceases to amaze me how fast shit got done back in the day without all the red tape and the bureaucratic interference. And here we are folks, pulling up to the station like a pimp, June 30th, 1909, and you can see, it's a madhouse in the Steel City, and the opening of Ford's is basically the hottest ticket in town. 30,388 people showed up to get into the crib that has a seating capacity of 25K, and it's literally SRL as thousands stood behind roped off barriers to watch their beloved Pirates fall to the north side cubbies three to tilt. And even though the team came up short for that game, the throwback crib was a smashing success. And it just oozed Allegheny culture. The formal opening of Forbes Field was a historic event. The 1910 Reach Baseball Guide wrote, Words will fail to picture in the mind's eye adequately the splendors of the magnificent pile President Dreyfus erected as a tribute to the national game and of the benefit to Pittsburgh and an enduring monument to himself. For architectural beauty, imposing size, solid construction, public comp- comfort and convenience, it is superior to to every baseball stadium in the world. And Forbes and featured the state-of-the-art technology of 1909. It was the beginning of ramps to get you to your levels more efficiently. It was the first stadium to have elevators. The House of Thrills was the first crib to use a tarp to protect the field from the elements. It was the first ballpark to pad the unforgiving brick home run walls. It was the first stadium to host a night All-Star game in 1944 and a nighttime World Series game in 1971 versus the Baltimore Orioles. They were the first team to wear knitted uniforms, those beautiful knitted sleeveless uniforms. Uh, They were awesome. Some of the sharpest gear ever in baseball. It was the first baseball team to be broadcast by announcer Harold Arlen on America's First, radio station, KDKA, which is still going strong today. The facade of the Pittsburgh Shrine, had featured bulk-colored terracotta font letters spelling out POC for the Pittsburgh Athletic Company. It was accentuated with green steelwork that stood in stark contrast with the red slate roof. Behind the dish... Players and umpires, that a clubhouse there was nestled under the grandstand. Right field ran parallel to Shenley Park. The two-deck grandstand began a little past rose base and extended to the left field line. The left and center field seats, they sat tiered atop a 12-foot high wooden home run fence. And in a sign of the small ball times... The ball field was pitcher-friendly and expansive, to say the least. From the left field foul line to the right field pole, the distances were 360 feet to left, 442 feet in the power alleys. There was an in-play American flag in play in center field. That stood at 462 feet, 376 feet to the right field pole. So look, this park, is absolutely Jurassic, you feel me, and while I was getting this together, my boy Mikey Frank's huge Pittsburgh Steelers, ran out of uh, Petersburg, Pennsylvania, he says to me, you know, there's a reason Willie Stargell didn't hit 500 dogs, and you know, he ain't lying, Will, Willie was one of the most powerful port side hitters I've ever seen, and some of the longest home runs in the game's history have come off of his bet, but you know. 376 feet, folks. And my boy Mikey caught that shit. It, it, it all makes sense to me now. Clemente surely would have had more as well. And only Forbes Field could contain the power of cats like that. It is for sure a pitcher's park as evidenced by the Buccos' 110-42 and 42 record that inaugural 1909 season. And the pitching staff had a puny 2.08 team ERA. They would go on to beat the Tigers with a world championship in seven games in a matchup of the two best players of the era, Tyrus Raymond Cobb and Bucko superstar Hannes Wagner. Now, in 4,728 games played in Forbes Field, no pitcher ever threw a no hitter in that colossal crib. By contrast, it was like a haven for inside-the-park home runs, triples, unassisted doubles and triple plays. And the owner, Barney Dreyfus, he loathed a cheap home run, and he vowed he would never have none of that in the burg. The yard, it rewarded defense, speed, and pitching. And there was a saying that went, for the unusual, go to Forbes. For the impossible, go twice. Back in nineteen, uh, back in eighteen ninety, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. folks, eighteen ninety. I mean, how beautiful is this sport, right? It is just ingrained in this country's DNA. You got boxing, horse racing, baseball, and I was the sports conscience of the American sports fanatic back then. It just really blows my mind about this sport. I, I, I literally have goosebumps right now. it's just nothing like it. Okay, so where was I? I digress. 1890, right? Okay, 1890, the club's first stadium. In fact, I don't want to forget, (laughs) the Pirates aren't even called the Pirates in 1890. They're called the Alleghenies. In 1891, they become the Pirates. In 1890, their first stadium exhibition Exposition Park hosted MLB's first triple header. Three games for the price of one. My God. Y- you know, is this heaven? No, man, it's fucking Pittsburgh. <laughs> and 30 years later, Forbes Field would reprise the last ever three for one deal. In 1925. Dreyfus throws his left-hand bats a bone when he masterminds the construction of two pavilions in right field and it shrinks the distance to 300 feet. The pitching countered this move in 1932 when a 14.5 foot in-place screen is added to the top of the 9.5 foot concrete wall in right. Left field now expanded from 360 feet to 365. Center field in the flagpole with From 435 feet to 457. There was 100 feet of distance from the dish to the backstop. Which was the furthest in the majors throughout our existence. I believe it's the most ever. In 1923. The batting cage was moved from behind the wall. And was now placed in left center field. And it was now in play like the flagpole. And the light tower cages in left, center, center, and right center field. And get this. i mentioned this in many of our old jewel box crib shows. Cars are becoming a huge part of American society. Seemingly, everyone can afford the Model T by Henry Ford. And there is the well-documented explosion with Americans and their love of automobiles from the turn of the century. To even today, in fact, cars would be the demise of many of these old stadiums as parking and accessibility became a dilemma as more and more cars are produced and bought in the United States. But the automobile boom is taking place at Forbes Field like anywhere else in the country at this time as cars and trucks were repainted and sold under the left field seats. The stadium certainly had its share of success in the 1920s. With Hannes Wagner now coaching the organization, the Buckos had very little problem adjusting to the new era. Pie Trainer was putting up 320 batting averages like clockwork, and he was a stalwart at third base for 17 years from 1920 to 1937. They also had speedster Max Carey, who led the NL in stolen bases 10 times as a Pirate. As well as Kiki Kyler, who hit 357 in 1925. And the stadium now sits 41,000 spectators. The same year that Kyler hits 357, the Pirates win the NL Pennant and find themselves down three games to one to the Washington Senators in the World Series. The Buckos win the next two to even the series, setting up the winner take all game seven. Senators ace Walter Big Train Johnson, the most dominating pitcher of his era, era, and is manhandled by the Pirates lineup as the legendary Hall of Fame pitcher is shelled for 15 hits, 9 runs, as the Buccos win 9-7. Uh, shortstop Roger Peckinpah had a huge error in that game. Uh, this would make sure that the Buccos would take home their first chip in 16 years since the 1909 season. And it would be their last until 35 years later in 1960. In 1927, the Pirates are even more stacked with the arrival of Cooperstown's sole brother, Dio, uh duo in Big Poison, Paul Wayner and Little Poison, his younger sibling, Lloyd Wayner. Big Poison led the NL in RBIs with 131, hits 237, triples with 22. Thank you very much, Sportsfield. Field. 342 total bases, as well as this prodigious 380 a- average. Unfortunately, uh, that Pirates team, they ran into a bus off The 1927 Murderers Row, New York Yankees, one of the greatest offensive units to ever breathe. The Yankees hit 307 7 during the regular season as a team. They clinched on Labor Day and out-homered the Buckos 184-54 to that 1927 campaign. The Pirates were outmanned, outgunned, and outplayed as Earl Combs and Bob Musil molested the power alleys while Bombers Ruth and Gehrig dropped dong into Shelly Park and they swept Pittsburgh and poor. The nineteen thirties team. That they're still kind of loaded with the Wayner Boys, Archie Vaughn, who also won the batting crown in nineteen thirty two with a three hundred eighty five average, as well as Pie Trainer. They were relatively successful with no tips to show for it. From nineteen thirty 1930 to nineteen thirty nine, and nineteen forty two to nineteen forty six. Forbes field was also the home park for two Negro Leagues teams, the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the Homestead Greats. On May 25th, 1935, Babe Ruth, now with the Boston Braves, he hits the last three home runs of his career, and they come at Forbes Field. That's a story we covered in the history of the Braves podcast show. Check it out. His last bomb coming at the expense of Pirates pitcher Guy Bush, and it is the first to clear the 86-foot-tall roof out in right field now. After Roos, only 16 more homers would clear that roof in the club uh, the crib's history with Starjo accomplishing the feat five times in his career. In nineteen thirty-two, Dreyfus dies, and his son-in-law, Bill Benswanger, uh, assumes the role of the team president in 1938. Ben Swanger installs a new set of seats on the grandstand roof. They call that the crow's nest. And he also installs the first elevator to the press box. And there's now an exit gate and right center field. Near the gate, in play, by the way, the pirates, I mean, it just sounds like they got shit all over the fucking field, right? The pirates erect a bronze and granite statue of Mr. Dreyfus. And in 1943, that statue is joined by a 32-foot high by 15-foot wide statue of a Marine standing at parade rest in homage to the World War II American soldiers. Okay, so let's keep score here. They got a flagpole. They got two fucking statues. Uh, with, you know, they got baton cages. I mean, what is this? Soon thereafter, a brick and ivy wall from right center field to left center field was constructed and left a 27-foot high hand-operated scoreboard with a long clock is embedded into the wall. Atop the wall was a row row of speaker horns, as they were called back then. The box seats were painted blue, the reserved gray, and the general admission seats were now gray or, or, I'm sorry, green or red. And beyond the third baseline, there were now bleachers. When the Buccos sent a drive over the outfield wall, Pirates announced her from 1936 to 1955, Rosie Roswell, he could be heard shouting, Get upstairs, Aunt Minnie, and raise the window. Here she comes! In 1946, the Pirates acquired the services of slugger Hank Greenberg from the Detroit Tigers. The Pirates moved the bullies from foul ground to left field, and he strung a fence to left center field and shrank the left field line from 365 feet to now 335. The 30 feet of area between the scoreboard and the new fence, it was christened Greenberg's garden. After one year in the berg, Greenberg retires to Garden, and it is rebranded Kiner's Corner after Pirates fan favorite, Ralph Kiner. Kiner had returned from the war in 1946, and he was always fond of saying, Home run hitters drive Cadillacs. He won seven straight NL home run titles including 51 Big Flies in 1947, 54 in 1949, and while the Power Game didn't bring the club any titles, it did keep the ball club relevant during those years. In 1952, he blasts 37 home runs and approaches GM Branch Nick Rickey about a raise. And the pragmatic Mr. Rickey denies the request, saying, We could have finished last without you, Ralph. That's my kind of GM there. Don't fuck that money up. The next year, Mr. Rickey moves on Kiner, sending him to the Cubs, and the Forbes interference is taken down. In 1955, Mr. Ricky has an 18,000-pound statue of Hannes Wagner placed in Shenley Park, and that same statue now stands outside of PNC Park. On May 8, 1956, Dale Long, he homers in eight straight games, which are still a major league record. In 1958, the Pirates play second, and manager Danny Mortal wins the manager of the year. In 1959, three new field and dugout rows push the Forbes field capacity back up to 35,000. Dick Stewart hits a shot. The first to clear left center field sport at 67-foot mark. And reliever Elroy Face won 17 games in a row. And the team is now on the precipice of becoming an elite National League unit. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to break out, pay some bills, replenish with some fluids, and course out my thoughts on where we go from here in this fascinating dive on Pittsburgh's former baseball cathedral, Formsfield. BRB, you freaks. Don't go anywhere. See you on the other side of the break.
1: Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tech's Game Executive producer of Backwards K-Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish board. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the fishing and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap, perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun Old Bay Spice. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaning, our craft hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back to 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish for fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. In no effect, hey mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a Buffalo Wing Hand Cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show that's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning crawfishhandcleaner.com seven to
0: six new york two balls two strikes and Hal Smith hits a down to deep left field. Oh, it's all his way back out there going. breaks loose at Forbes Field. The fans go wild in Pittsburgh as Hal Smith slams a long drive, 425 feet over the left field wall. Scoring Grooke and Clemente ahead of
2: him. Crew with a murder mark, yo ho ho, and a bottle of rum. For I got less white for an ounce of lead, for way home and butterhead. The skip I got was rotting red, and daily I turn my eyes, looking up at paradise. All oh, souls fun just gone rare, rare, yo ho ho, and a bottle of rum. Every Jack, say we don't Okay, so before I bounce, we were talking about the magnificent baseball palace known as Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, former home of the, Pir- the Pirates. And in summation, Bucco's owner Barty Dreyfus. A man we have covered before here at BKP is green with envy after having watched their Keystone State rival Phillies erect the incomparable Shy Park. It's built, uh, Port Field is adjacent to Shenley Park, located in the Oakland area of Pittsburgh, which is about three miles from the business district of the city. And the stadium is an instant hit, both at the turnstile, and for the boys on the field, many writers, pundits, and fans claim she is even hotter than Shy Park. The Buccos win the World Series, that inaugural 1909 season versus the Tigers. They would win a second chip in 1925, demolishing pitching legend Walter Johnson and his Senators in Game 7. And they would fall to the mighty Murderer's Row 1927 Yankees team. After 1927, they came up short, winning NL pennants, but they remain a uh, you know a relevant fixture in the league behind the star power of such players like the Waiter Boys, Archie Vaughn, Hank Greenberg, and Ralph Kiner. They now have the greatest GM in baseball's history, Branch Rickey, in their front office, and he is building a powerhouse NL juggernaut. By 1960. The Pirates are primed for greatness, even if the baseball universe doesn't realize it yet. And I think that's where we left off, right? So we'll pick up right from there. The 1960 season is simply magical. As the fighting buckos of the Berg, they win 23 games in their last at bat that year. MVP shortstop Dick Grote wins the batting title with a 325 average. Pitcher Vern Law wins the NL Cy Young Award, going 20-9 with a 3.08 ERA and a league-leading 18 complete games and a 122 ERA+. plus. Uh, Dick Stewart, Rocky Nelson, they shared first-base duties in a platoon capacity and combined for 30 home runs. In center field, Bill Verdon, he rivals Willie Mays defensively. And right field, the one, Roberto Clemente, He's establishing his legacy with a 314 batting average while driving in 94 and 19 outfield assists. On September 25th, 1960, the Yenzers, they clinched their first pennant since 1927. Ten days later, the 1960 World Series between the Pirates and the Dynastic Yankees jumps off at Forbes Field. And the Pirates took Game 1, four and 4-5. By the scores of six to four, three to two, and five to two. Conversely, the Bombers put on this vulgar display of power in games two, three, and six, winning by the scores of sixteen to three, 10 to nothing, and twelve to nothing. Bobby Richardson, who would be the only player from a losing team to win a World Series MVP. He sets the World Series mark for most RBI in a game when he drove in six in game six behind the 12 to nothing beaten they administered to the Pirates. And, you know, you figure that surely has to change the momentum back in New York's favor even though it's in Forbes Field. After all, Whitey Ford had already thrown two shutouts at the Pirates. The Yankees had out-hit the Bucs 338-256. to 256. They out-hammered them 10-4 uh, at home runs, and he outscored them 55-27, to 27. and honestly, the pirate ship looked dead in the water as they listlessly floated into port for Game 7 at Forbes, and obviously, the Buccos got tired of being punked by the pinstripes, they decided to out-bully the bully in Game 7, they fired the first salvo of cannonballs as Rocky Nelson hits a two-run shot in the first to put the berg up two to nothing. Down for two and a six. Yankees left fielder. Yogi Berra hits a three run home run to put New York up by two. In the bottom of the eighth, Bill Burden smacks a one uh one out, one on grounder to Yankee shortstop Tony Kubek. And the ball takes a crazy bounce and puts Kubek face down in the dirt when it ricochets off his Adam's apple in what was solely looking like a tailor-made ground ball double play in the making. Grote and Clemente, they follow with singles to push the score to 7-6 New York. And Hal Smith, you just heard the call, by Mel Allen, would drop three-run electrifying dong to turn Forbes into a madhouse. As the Fight Buccos now lead 9-7 to going into the top of the ninth. But, you know, look. As a fan of an AL East team, a rival team. I know, these goddamn Yankees, they just don't die. They tie the score and they're half of the ninth. Setting the table for arguably the most dramatic ending to a World Series ever. And the Dodgers clock in left field, it read 3.36. When Yankees reliever Ralph Terry hangs off slider over the meat of the plate. And Mazaroski hammers it over the left field wall. And when you go back and you look at it, you see the back of Yogi Berra, his iconic number eight, running after that blast. Uh, he kind of ducks out of the way, hoping it's going to tear him off the wall. And then he just kind of stares in stunned disbelief as he sees the ball disappear over the fence and he hears the city of Pittsburgh just explode into jubilation. For the third time in franchise history, the Pittsburgh Pirates are champions of the baseball universe. By default, that home run by Mass it, it sustained the fan base throughout the 1960s in 1966 Matty Alou wins the batting title at 3.42. and the buccos barely missed the postseason that year between 1961 and 1969 the pirates fell to the, uh to you know the second division five times but they still had Clemente as the draw in 1958 The Pirates sold the old lady of Shenley Park to Pitt University for $2 million. And $2 million in 1958 is worth around $21.05 million in the 2023 economy. The college had ambitions to expand their graduate facilities. And the Buckos were looking to purchase a new multi-purpose crib. Amazingly, the Pirates were caught looking at the grass on the other side. Not thinking it was greater. And I brought this up in the side park show. Both of those teams, filthy, the bunkos, they went from, you know, palatial, intimate cathedrals of baseball, to two real shit boxes in Vets, Veterans Stadium and Three Rivers. Both teams wanted something bigger, and you know, well, you got it. In hindsight, leaving Forbes almost forced the Buccos to leave Central Pennsylvania as Three Rivers was by far, by far more favorable for football as the Steelers of the 70s and beyond now rule the city. And former Pirates radio play-by-play guy Bob Prince, I love that fucking dude. He's got kind of a voice like me. I, I just get a, you know, just imagine the two of us talking to each other and our hear their crazy voices. Well, he remarked, leaving Forbes Field was awful. They took the players away from the fans. It was unique. So, what if grinders or girders needed replacing? Replace them. You can do it. Add bleacher seats. They had a way, they just didn't have the will. Forbes Field shuts their gates for good after the Pirates swept a couple of must win games versus the Cubs on June 8th, 1970. Before a forty thousand nine hundred eighteen emotionally exhausted Pirates fans, uh, that was their largest crowd since nineteen fifty six. And with the Buccos marching towards their first of six NLEs pennants in the nineteen seventies, they avenged that stadium's opening loss to the North Siders with a three two win over Bill Hands and Company in a time of two thirty five two hours. 35 minutes, folks. No pitch clocks. And I said this a few weeks ago. The pitch clock has just put the game back on the pace that it always was before. Yeah, PDs, Mr. T, Gold Starter kits, body armor of the 1990s. Little secret to the youngins. This is how it it always was. After that win in the first game, uh, they went on to the second game. And with the Pirates in front... Three to one in the six. Al Oliver, one of the most steady bats ever. He steps to the plate in the stadium's last game. Well hit, very deep to right.
0: Look out, that's probably gone. It is a home run.
2: And that, good brothers and sisters, is the last home run that would ever be hit at Forbes Field. That would put the score 4-1, and Pittsburgh would take two from their heated rivals. The final two games were star-studded with eight future Hall of Fame players on the Forbes Field Uh, surface. Ron Santo, Ernie Banks, Billy Williams, Ferguson Jenkins, Cubs manager Leo the Lip, As well as Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell, Bill Mazaraski, and Hall of Fame umpire Al Barlick as well. Uh, With two outs at the top of the ninth, comes shortstop Don Kessinger comes to the plate.
0: Round ball, bouncing up the middle. Taken by Maz, he steps on second for the final putout in the history of Forbes Field. So Mazurowski has the distinction of making the final put-up. No runs, one hit, no errors, one left. And the final score, Pittsburgh for the Cubs One. I'll be back in a moment with a recap on the game.
2: And, finally, Mass, with the you know the biggest hit in Pirates history, fittingly, uh, he makes the last out, unassisted to second base. And with that last out in the books... Absolute chaos ensues uh, ensues. Uh, much like the last game of Chime, people broke out screwdrivers, wrenches, and hammers. They're trying to take as many pieces of their memory as they could. And it was a literally literal free for all. Anything the fans could take, they took in an aftermath that resembled, you know, like a jailhouse riot where the inmates had clearly taken control of the asylum. Almost a year later, a fire breaks out in the abandoned structure and the wrecking ball was soon to follow, much like Scheib Park. They caught a fire and it was eventually torn down after that. Today, home plate sits in glass and it anchors Pitts Forbes Quadrangle, which is a large graduate school classroom and office buildings. A plaque also notes where Maz's miracle cleared the fence and a lovely red brick path traces the left-field wall and is adorned in ivy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of Forbes Field. And I never knew much about Forbes. Now, I'm very grateful for this platform and the chance to research stuff like this. I mean, what a story. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoy telling it. And I'll try to be better next week. Now, before I bail, let's take one final look at the baseball palace, formerly known as Forbes Field, home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Worms Field, a.k.a. the House of Thrills, a.k.a. the Old Lady at Shenley Park, a.k.a. the Oakland Orchard. It was located at 230 Bouquet Street. Uh, the 1909 capacity was 23,000. 1925, it was 41,000. 1970, it was 35,000. It was a natural grass surface. And it had a hand-operated scoreboard on the left field wall. It broke ground March 1st, 1909, and it was finished June of that year. The estimated cost in 1909 was $2 million, or $65.1 million today. The architect was Charles Levitt Jr. From 1954 to 1970, its dimensions stood firm, 365 feet to left field, That's 111 meters. Left center field, 406 feet, 124 meters. Center field was 457 feet or 139 meters. Right center field was 408 or 124 meters. And right field was 375 feet or 114 meters. All in all, the Pirates played there from 1909 to 1970. It was the Steelers' first stadium. They played there from 1933 to 1963, Steelers in the NFL. Pitt Panthers played there, 1909 to 1924. The Dukes of Duquesne, 1933 to 1942, and 1947 to 1950. Homestead Grays, Pittsburgh Crawfords of the ne- uh, the Negro Leagues, and the Pittsburgh Americans of the AFL, 1936 to 1937. The house of the 1959 All-Star Game won by the National League 5-4. The ceremonial first pitch of the game was thrown by Vice President Richard Milhouse Nixon. And it was the home of four NL pennants and three World Series titles. 1909, 1925, and 1960. And I think that about covers it. What a fascinating story that was. There are all kinds of books video if you want to go down that Forbes field rabbit hole for yourself there are shows here in our BKP collection that are already intertwined and they kind of bleed into one another I mean I got the very first pod ever done here at BKP the Roberto Clemente show the Branch Rickey show has some great Pittsburgh stories the Hannes Wagner bio in the collection you know it's just chock full of stories about Forbes Field owner Barney Dreyfus. and don't forget I also have, you know, Josh Gibson's story as well in our collection. And uh, check out the Orioles Park and Camden Yards uh, show. The Orioles president at the time, Larry Lachino, who grew up a fan of the Pirates and Forbes Field. And basically, you know, the construction of Camden Yards, it's heavily influenced by the House of Thrills. And a lot of side stories that connect. And now we have Forbes Field herself in our collection. All of my shows, of course, are on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your shows, or you can swing over to my website, com to hear any and all shows in my vaults of Always Expanding Archives. I promise, good brothers and sisters, I'll never charge you for the baseball contact. I would never pay money for a pod, and I'll never do that to you. No Patreon, no Twitch. I'm just going to keep rolling up my sleeves every week and dole out that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my boy Clemente. If you're on a platform that gives you the opportunity to rate and review my performance, please do so as you see fit. I ain't scared. It raises my search engine profile. Cost you nothing. It's how I feed the dog. And... I'm being honest, he's looking kind of anorexic these days. And it allows me to do what I love to do more than anything in this world. And that is pontificate the seams with this amazing audience. And look, let's be honest. Uh, Who do I got a rim to get more fucking rates and reviews and stars? I see the data. I have way more listeners than rates and reviews. So you tell me, what do you want? What do I have to do to get you guys to help me feed my fucking dog? I don't even care about me but look, the dog got to eat. It costs you nothing. It takes two seconds to push five stars and type two words. Great fucking show. It's the one area this show lacks, and that concerns me. Fuck Arias. I'm a, you know, my average in here is 423. I'm a 400 hitter. I work so hard, and that's for so little. What do you want from me? Free shit? I got to go all socialists in here? What, what am I? Castro? Okay, pot. I'll give you free shit. Give me a rate review on Apple or Spotify, and then you tell me what I should give you. I mean, I give you free shows. Almost a hundred of them now. But I don't know. Maybe that's not enough. So please, give me five stars reviews, and reviews, and, and then send me a message about what I owe you. And we'll take it from there. When you send those messages to me, you can do it a number of ways. The show's Twitter handle at back-k-podcast. underscore My personal page is at Robbie one that's J-R-O-B-B-I-E, and the number one. Our YouTube channel and Instagram pages, fly to the Backwards K-Pod banner. But, you can usually find me chilling at the most comprehensive and positive interaction page in the book. And that's the Facebook private group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, some of the you know, some of the greatest baseball minds on the planet in there. Like for real, the only difference between a lot of these guys and the loudmouth analysts that you see on TV, the major difference between us still is you know they just ain't on TV. I mean, they're brilliant baseball minds, baseball acumen, and it's all around me every day. I'm surrounded by it every fucking day. I am a blessed man. So. Answer the questions, and come on in if you like. That's the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook private group page. So, with the Forbes field extravaganza in the books with a backwards K next to it, and now added neatly to the stadium wing of our collection, I turn my steely eye glaze at the baseball hydrant that's staring back at me. I draw my katana, and I chop. (laughs) The head of the beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we're going to take a look at the life and times of a true winner. Now betting the shortstop, number two, Derek Jeter, number two, the most overhated man in baseball. I mean, you know, next to Nolan Ryan, but I love Jeter, and I respect the way that dude carried himself on and off the diamond, and I can't wait to add DJ to our collection of ballplayers here at Backwards K-Pod. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. I I just don't get the cheater hate, man. Maybe maybe I'll do a story and find out. You know, he kicked some puppies off the Brooklyn Bridge or something. And it will explain all this vitriol that I see directed at him on on social media. The funny thing is, his biggest haters side with A-Rod of all fucking douchebags. I just don't get it. But we'll see what I find out. Please support... The grassroots sponsor that supports your grassroots baseball podcast show, Labros Fish and Hand Cleaner. No most smelly hands. You can find those products at CrawfishHandCleaner.com. And my neighbor Shipmate, he blasted out of park with that stuff, man. It's fucking amazing. Shout out to my executive producer, PodSquatch, Big Tex, Gage Guillen, working towards his PGA card. Get her done, Big country. Omar Gabby, my secret operative in the field since the beginning of BKP. He handles all my social media stuff. I don't tell you enough how much you mean to this show, bro. Thank you, oh. And I think about you know that about wraps it up. I've accomplished my agenda this week. I see you next week with the Derek Jeter bio. And I'm literally chomping at the bit to get it done. Parents, if you see your kid sitting in the house, they got their nose in a bone, looking unproductive and bored, and, uh. By all means, take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one on one jousting session last year, You go straight to hell, Andy Pettit. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Straight to hell, you monkey. You demonic southpaw, you. See you next week, Steamheads. Peace.